I'm Skip Paplesley with an important news bulletin. Booked episodes available everywhere. Listen to Booked on iTunes, Stitcher, Instacast, Podcast.com, The Zoom Marketplace, and BookedPodcast.com. You can even hear Booked episodes playing through the conference room door of James Patterson's lawyer's office. This has been Skip Papersley reminding you where you can find episodes of Booked. Thank you. Welcome to Booked, the Noir at the Bar Sessions. I'm Rob Olson. And I'm Livius Nenton. Uh, Noir at the Bar Sessions, the second one. We're very excited. Uh, this evening, we're going to be bringing you uh, Benjamin Whitmer. Um, if you want to know all about everything we talked about, about Noir at the Bar 2, go back and listen to the last episode. We spent a whole bunch of time talking about it. That's right. So for right now, I'm just going to read you a little bit from the foreword that Jed Ayers wrote for Noir at the Bar 2. Give you a little bit of feel for what you're uh, in for when you're reading the book. The first Noir at the Bar anthology featured a broad range of noir flavors. Our authors busted the seams of genre in a dozen different directions, and with this, the second schizo version of crime fiction for now, we may have actually broken noir. Yes, some of the stories in this collection you'd be hard-pressed to find any prosecutable actions in, but they're steeped in transgression and moral failure up to their tits. The writers got the wrong right, and that's worth more to us than a hundred brilliantly plotted whodunits. Don't worry, we brought the violence too. We won't leave you blue-balled for mayhem. And sex? You bet. In fact, you may wish we hadn't. Sorry, you're stuck with it. It cannot be unread. Boy, that Judd's a classy guy, huh? He's telling it how it is. <laughs> it is. I haven't read all of them <laughs> yet, but yeah, there is not a, there is not an untruth in this statement here, so... <laughs> Some shudder-worthy stuff there. Mm-hmm. All right. So in the in the hot seat this time is uh, Benjamin Whitmer. Uh, a little bit about Benjamin from his bio, which appears in Noir at the Bar 2. Benjamin Whitmer is the author of Pike and co-author of Satan is Real, The Ballad of the Leuven Brothers. He lives with his wife and two children in Colorado, where he spends most of his free time trolling local histories and haunting the bookshops, tobacconists, and firing ranges of ungentrified Denver. I'd... Uh... I'd love to just go off on about eight tangents, but I think we're going to throw you right into the interview that we did, and then we'll just chatter a little bit afterwards. Yep. Without delaying it any longer, here is our interview with Benjamin Whitmer. Ben, thanks for taking the time this evening to come on and talk to us here at Booked. Thank you for having me. All right, to kind of kick it off, because uh, we're doing these interviews in, you know, uh, in the in anticipation of the Noir at the Bar 2 anthology, do you want to tell us a little bit about how you came to be involved with uh, Jed Ayers, Scott Phillips, and the whole Noir at the Bar thing? Oh, to be honest, I, I really have no idea. I met Jed, I think. Um, I actually met him in person at the last BoucherCon in uh, St. Louis, but we talked online before that. He gave Pike a really nice review, and uh, we sort of made internet friends through some other people same with scott phillips you know i I didn't really know who these guys were until uh and in reality until the last patrick on all right ben how about telling us a little bit about your actual reading experience at noir at the bar it was a guess i mean i flew down to do it because uh i just heard such great things and I, i i hadn't met scott yet at the time and i wanted to i guess just have the chance 
So I flew down, and I didn't even really have a noir book out at the time, right? I just finished the Satan is Real book about uh, co-written with Charlie Leuven. So I read a chapter from that, and luckily everybody was really, really nice to me regardless. Very cool. So your story in uh, the Noir at the Bar 2 anthology is called If One Won't, Another Will. Um, yes, sir. you want to give us a little quick rundown about what the story is for our listeners? Uh, man, I don't even know. I'm not even sure it's a noir story. I stole the line, uh, stole the title, I think, from a Carter family song. I've had country, old country music on my, on my brain for like two years now. I think it was just, uh, I started thinking, of, there's this little town outside of Denver called Greeley. Have you ever been to Denver? Actually, Only yeah. in the airport for me. Okay. <laughs> there's this great little town outside of Denver called Greeley, which was started as a, started as a, uh, farming commune by Horace Greeley, who was a, um, an abolitionist, 19th century abolitionist. And, you know, it started out as this, you know, sort of utopian place. And these days it's known for having a really shit smelling, uh, um, rendering plant, you know, slaughterhouse. And it's also the home of the, uh, Greeley stamp stampede, which is a rodeo. So it's kind of a rough little town. And I just, I really liked it, so I thought I'd set some stories there. Now, this is my first attempt. We'll see how it goes. <laughs> I think it went pretty well. I don't want to disclose too much about the story, but we had uh, we had talked, or we got a chance to read it. Um, Jed was nice enough to provide us with an advanced copy um, so we could read some of these stories before we talked to you guys. And uh, that, that poor bastard, your protagonist, man. I, just, <laughs> I really, every time, it just like the next paragraph started, it just felt worse and worse for this guy, so... <laughs> I feel Definitely bad for myself. For me. Yeah. <laughs> Good. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I realized after I wrote it that I'd essentially, I don't want to give away too much, but I'd essentially uh, rewritten a skit that uh, supposedly Tom Waits told Henry Rollins. So you'll have to go on, on YouTube and Google that, Tom Waits, Henry Rollins. Oh, awesome. And I realized, holy shit, I accidentally wrote that. <laughs> that's um, That's got to be an interesting conversation right there. Those guys I, it's a pretty good story. <laughs> um, back at the beginning of this year, we had a, an episode that was a, an intro to Hard Boiled to have, um, you know, kind of someone come on, a, a kind of expert. And we had Nick Corpon come on and talk to us about Hard Boiled and kind of give us the, the lowdown on, on what that means to him and in the Hard Boiled community. And he had mentioned Pike, your novel, as the quintessential contemporary hard-boiled novel. Can you give us a, your like kind of quick take on what hard-boiled means to you? That uh, yeah, I actually heard that because uh, um, somebody turned turned me on to the fact that he said that, and I was really flattered. Um, well, I think of hard-boiled, and I, I know I shouldn't conflate hard-boiled and noir, but I always end up doing it regardless. But uh, when I think of those, I always think of that Dennis Lehane. Uh, um, quote, you know, the noir is working class tragedy, right? Only instead of falling from a gra very great height, it's just people falling from the curb, something like that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I'm not even entirely sure what tragedy is, but at the same time, that just seems to fit to me, you know? This uh, idea of people in, in a fallen world, you know, doing the best they can and, and usually fucking it up. And that's that's about as broadly and as uh, and as narrowly as I define it. Very nice. Well, yeah, Nick just had no end of really, really nice things to say about Pike. And the, I guess one of the downsides to doing a book review podcast is that your book came on, Pike came under our radar after we are basically 
dedicated to reading a book every week, so we can't really fit in, you know, leisure reading in there. So uh, we haven't okay. I haven't had a chance to get around to reading Pike yet, but it's like it's just so you know at the front of my mind now because of how highly he spoke of it. Um, and actually, Nick sent in a couple of questions. We told him we were going to be talking to you, and uh, he had a couple of questions. Um, oh, cool. If you don't mind, I'm going to throw really quickly. Uh, so one of his questions, I guess, uh, is about some of the philosophical undertones of the book. Um, he said Uh-oh. sort of like the very bleak existentialism bordering on nihilism, uh, and he gives the example of a line, the holes they dug themselves into were the exact shape of their dreams. So um, I guess he's looking for you to kind of maybe expand on the idea of the philosophical undertones of the book. Well, I mean, I'm not sure it would be. <laughs> I'm not sure if I have a coherent uh, philosophical worldview. If you know what I'm saying, I'm sort of a grabbing uh, or catching catch as catch can um, guy. I guess if that makes sense. In that case, what I was talking about was what I think I was talking about wasn't anything much broader than that. That the people I've seen who managed to fuck themselves up the best uh, had the best developed sense of themselves as the center of the universe right they uh then it was their dreams typically which did them in and they you know again we're talking about noir folks or hard-boiled folks we're not talking about dreams to become president (laughs) you know we're talking about dreams to you know sue the guy who hit you and broke your leg so you can live on disability for six months or something you know i don't i don't know (laughs) I'm trying to remember exactly where I was when I wrote that. I've been reading a lot of Schopenhauer lately. I can quote you some really depressing shit by him. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, my, I guess my follow-up would be, so in the instances like this where, I mean, obviously that's a line that moved Nick a lot. Um, are you drawing on, I, not necessarily ex- personal experiences, but just like things that you've seen throughout you know, your life to, that inspired you to, to, to write like that? Ah, absolutely. I mean, you know, and that's that's the funny thing is when people talk about Pike or, or uh, you know, I, a lot of people say it's real dark or, um, or yeah, and I don't feel like that, I guess. I mean, it, it is, it reflects my worldview fairly adequately or else I wouldn't have written it. But it's, uh, you know, I think there's a lot of hope in there too, but it's hope mitigated by a pretty rough, pretty rough world and pretty rough circumstances. It's funny earlier you were saying um, about you know being at the center of their own universes, and it's funny. I was just watching the, some of the Drew Peterson stuff on on TV earlier, and that's exactly the thought I had about that guy. Like how the whole entire universe had to revolve around him for him to be in the situation that he's currently in right now. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. So, um, switching gears a little bit, tell us a little bit about the book you co-authored with Charlie Leuven, "Satan Is Real: The Ballad of the Leuven Brothers." And that was a that was a great wild ride. I have I still to this day have no real idea where it came from, <laughs> except that I got you know contacted by my agent Nick Neil or Neil Strauss was looking for somebody to do this project, and uh, we sent in actually excerpts of Pike. You know, didn't really think I had a chance in hell when I sent it in, but he liked it enough. He gave me the gig, and it, I mean I got to go down to Nashville and sit on Charlie's back porch with him and smoke cigarettes and swap stories about Johnny Cash and shit. And you can't beat that. Yeah, there's got to be worse ways to spend an evening than that, I would imagine. It was, 
<laughs> it was amazing. And then, you know, and him too, and his story with Ira. And uh, we talked on the phone every day for, you know, five, almost six months. It was just, and he was amazing. He would just work his ass off. And he, I mean, he had cancer the entire time. He was dying. You know, we the last time we talked was two weeks before he passed away. And it was just uh, an amazing experience. So the book itself is, is nonfiction, right? Nonfiction, yeah. As much as any book can be, absolutely. <laughs> and it's a story about these Leuven brothers who were... I, I may have read the synopsis, but I'm not super familiar with them personally. They're uh, in the country music scene, right? Yeah, they were, they, were, uh, they were one of the... They were probably the last great, you know, blood harmony duet. So... They uh, they were a little late for their time, actually. I mean, in the, most of the people doing the style of music they were doing, most of that time had already passed out of country music. Country music was changing, but uh, they managed to hit it big, sort of on the on the very end of the end of the the reality of country music. You know, right right as Elvis was taking off and things were changing completely, and Chet Atkins was altering the Nashville sound. Um, just, I mean, it's just, it's, a, it's an old time, those, those old time music guys, you know, riding around in cars for driving for 36 hours on speed, showing up to places, <laughs> playing for four hours, doing enough speed to drive for 36 more hours, you know, and then you get drunk and get in a fight with the guitar player. You know? <laughs> <laughs> it's that kind of life. <laughs> it's, it was amazing. <laughs> It's like you just recited behind the scenes here at our podcast. That's exactly the kind of thing that happens to us all the time. I kind of figured. That's, that's what I hoped. <laughs> it's yeah. It's all just speed and driving around, picking fights with authors. <laughs> good, good, good. <laughs> the other thing that Nick wanted us to kind of bring up uh, is is the contrast between your two books. So Pike has this. This is this is my quote from him. Pike has such a distinct voice, but in nonfiction, you can't let your voice get in the way of the people you're writing about. How did you approach writing Satan is real in a voice that was your own, but still ingenuous to the Leuven story? Well, Charlie made it real easy. I mean, I had the option when I, when I talked to Neil, basically he told me this book's about Charlie. It's your book though. And write it any way you want. So, I mean, we initially, I wasn't even thinking of doing it in first person from Charlie's point of view. Right. I was going to write the stories in third person and, and do a much colder book. But after about day three with Charlie, right, and sitting on the back porch, he really started to loosen up, and he started telling me stories. And the first couple of days, the stories he'd tell, you could tell he told them 30 or 40,000 times, right? And they were all, you know, sort of really rehearsed. But then he opened up, and you just heard this amazing voice come out of him, sort of a irascible, you know, old school country voice and I realized that there was no way I could do anything but try and set that down as truly as as, as humanly possible. So I mean that was it. I didn't have any options. What um if you had to pick between writing fiction and writing nonfiction, which one did you enjoy more? Oh, I'll I'll never write nonfiction. <laughs> well there you go. <laughs> actually that's not true. I have feelers out for one guy. I will write I will work with only one person on a nonfiction project ever again. If if contacted, I will do Mel Gibson's, but nobody else's. Because <laughs> I think the only person who hates, you know, Mel Gibson as much as me is probably Mel Gibson. So I think we could do a hell of a book together. 
Yeah. They sitting out on the back porch of Mel Gibson doesn't really sound like that much fun to me, to be honest. <laughs> it could be it could be fun. It could be fun. <laughs> I'd but, want to be armed. <laughs> I guess it would have to be interesting. Like I, I, I definitely always like reading um stories where you've got a person who just gets to live in the life of someone for a certain amount of time, like just to like like you had that kind of he starts telling you these stories and he's he's pretty much unguarded. And those are so fascinating to me because you have this kind of image of history that's as untainted, I guess, as as is possible, I guess, when you're seeing this through, you know, someone's pers- you know, uh, impression of, of the stories that they're hearing. So that had to be just a wonderful experience to, to spend that time with him and, and hear firsthand like the life that they, they had that they lived and experienced. It was amazing and I remember going into it. The one thing I kept thinking, and this this is probably I don't know if this is something I should admit, admit but I'd read the Loretta Lynn book, and I read a bunch of those books, and the you know the probably the most famous one it seems to me out of the country music biography genre is Loretta Lynn's, right? And it's all shot through you know soft focus and cheesecloth, and you know there's all these lines like we were poor but we had love, and I I didn't want anything to do with any of that shit, you know. And it was great because Charlie immediately, he had no interest. You know, being poor was brutal. The, the way they were poor it was brutal. It, it made their parents hard uh, and abusive. And there was just, there was nothing good about it. And it was just a, I mean, not to say there wasn't love and there weren't good times to be had, but there was very little horse shit. And that's what I wanted. That was my thought even before you were saying we were talking about writing Mel Gibson's biography is that um, a lot of them, especially when the, the subject is involved, you think there's things they don't want to talk about or they want to dress up a different way. And my my thought on it was here's like an old country musician who probably really doesn't care what anybody thinks and is just giving it to you straight so you don't have to dress up the ugly situation. So I'm glad that you actually said that. Loretta Lynn would not have come to mind as a comparison for me. <laughs> but that's uh, but yeah, I mean, I I could see where that would be much more unfiltered coming from somebody who's you know who knows he's he's kind of heading towards the end and he's willing to do this and, and tell his story that you're not getting a bunch of uh, you know Liz Taylor biography stuff that you're getting some some real, real good stuff there. That's exactly what I wanted. That's exactly. I mean, that's exactly what. And to his credit, to his great credit, you know, that's what he wanted too. So Ben, uh, you want to tell us a little bit of, or can you tell us a little bit about your uh, what you're currently working on? <laughs> I got so many projects. Um, <laughs> it's ridiculous. So Pike's coming out in French in uh, in about a week, and I have a second novel now, which uh, I'm actually working with the with the publisher in France, Editions uh, Gallmeister. Uh, he also does Craig Johnson and a bunch of uh, Ed Abbey. I was real happy to be on Ed Abbey's label, <laughs> but. Um, so we're gonna work. I'm working with him, and it, it might come out in France actually before it comes out in America. And then I have another novel I'm about you know, three quarters of the way through with, which is a Denver historical piece. And then I'm researching one that I'm gonna do with my fatally flawed, fucked up hero being Teddy Roosevelt. We'll see how that works. That the high school awesome. I went to. <laughs> high school I went to was named after Teddy Roosevelt. <laughs> He's my favorite monomaniac. I can't wait to dig in. That sounds real. That sounds. I'm I'm definitely looking forward to that one. <laughs> now, now, are you doing the actual French translation for Pike? Oh hell no! <laughs> I, I got the feeling you were, but I had to throw it out there and, and ask. No, in fact, I think I got a great review today. 
in in French, according to Google Translate. But I have no idea what it said. <laughs> but it seemed like it was all good stuff. <laughs> so I'm just enjoying the the thought of that. <laughs> so what's that experience? I mean, like when your book gets translated into another language, and this isn't something that we've really talked to people much about. Do you have any kind of role in that or is it basically they say we're translating this we have this person and then you know we're going to tell you when it's done it's it's something like that although the guy um jock i don't know how to pronounce his last name Malhos, maybe his name is of course his name is jock that's all i <laughs> something like that he's a he's an incredible <laughs> guy he he would email me questions you know and say i don't understand what this means man so and we work back and forth through it that way and he also found a bunch of errors that I didn't even notice in the English edition. <laughs> <laughs> that was embarrassing. But um all superior, it, always acting superior over there. <laughs> well, it's pretty sad when you have me as a copy editor. <laughs> so but we we had a real good time actually. And he he, you know, brought to mind a bunch of stuff about the see, I'm an idiot about my own books, you know. So people will say do you know, do you know, what about this theme when you were doing this? And I'll have forgotten entirely what I was doing. So I had to make it up. <laughs> we, we have the experience on the other side of that, where we point out things that we notice in books to people, like when we're interviewing authors after having read their book or something. And um, they say, Oh really? I didn't, I never realized that. So yeah. Um, <laughs> there's, that a, there's, a, there's a great think, little joke thing floating around like Facebook that says, you know, um, you know what you know what the author said the curtains are blue what the reader interprets it says you know and, and it's something real existential and what the author actually meant the curtains are blue you know <laughs> that, that kind of thing <laughs> yeah so, exactly yeah. there's some t- i mean i get to, i do i get so involved in them when i'm doing them you know like when i was doing pike i was reading so much and, and just trying to you know i had such complete ideas of what it was i wanted to do but the minute you go on to the next project you just forget you you can't keep it or else you write the same fucking book and you're screwed. That's a good point. <laughs> Is there anything you'd like to plug before we let you go? Anything I'd like to plug? Well, yeah, yeah I mean, uh, for myself, not necessarily, but uh, people should definitely grab Jed Air's uh, A Fuckload of Shorts. <laughs> That's uh, been my favorite recently. I've also been reading Court McMeal's uh, Short. That's a hell of a book. And, uh, He's turned me on to also Poe, but I guess I don't know how to plug Poe, huh? <laughs> so, <laughs> fuckload of shorts. You read the you read the the whole thing. Oh yeah, loved it. <laughs> Is okay, and and you've all right. So, you've met Jed Ayers, and you've read lots of uh, a handful of short stories at least now that he's written. Um, mm-hmm. Is there any way to see the stories that he writes coming from the person that he is? Like, <laughs> I, I I did a review of Fuckload of Shorts recently, and I said that he's like that giant teddy bear you win at a carnival or something. Like, he's just this really tall, super sweet dude. And reading reading the stuff that he writes, it's like, how good does this come out of this person? <laughs> it is. It's brilliant. I mean, he's he's like uh, just the kindest, most generous guy. And, uh, you know, I get, go to St. Louis, and he's, he works in this coffee shop. And he's just those laid-back gentlemen. And then you read this stuff, and you're just like, holy <laughs> fuck. But at the same time, there's a lot going on in his stories. You know, what I kept noticing was that these stories could be anything, and they'd be about as brilliant. Because he's really, I mean, he's really driving 
different sort of points and ideas that it seems to me at least into them that uh he's sort of almost using i don't want to get myself killed by him for saying this but it's almost like uh you know he could be doing this in any genre does that make sense mm-hmm. yeah like he definitely loves noir and he loves crime fiction i can't see him really doing anything else but he would be interrogating the stuff he is the stuff he's interrogating no matter what he was doing yeah it's giant true. teddy bear fiction <laughs> that's what we're gonna send Jed next. Furry fiction. It's about Thompson. <laughs> <did> it. <laughs> Apologies to Jed Ayers. We love you. We promise. <laughs> so, uh, for anybody who's listening who wants to find out more about you, uh, where where can they go to look for you online? Uh, I mean, I got a website. It's my name dot com, and it's uh, <laughs> it's um, you know, I try and update it as much as I can. I used to be a lot better about it. <laughs> I've gotten less so. And then uh, you know, Facebook, Twitter, all those places. Just Google my name and you'll find me if if you want to. Well, Ben, we definitely want to thank you for taking the time to come on and uh, and talk to us a little bit. Glad we finally got to hear a little bit more about Pike and uh and uh talk to you a little bit. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, big thanks again to to Benjamin Whitmer. Um I I don't know if I expected to be so excited about that uh, that nonfiction thing he wrote, The Satan is Real, uh, the, about the Leuven brothers. That just sounds so fantastic uh, after the way he explained it. Yeah, well, you know how I feel about nonfiction, and I, I got to tell you, I'm, I'm kind of kind of a little hooked into this too. So <laughs> I add Satan is Real to my lengthy list of stuff I need to look into. <laughs> the ever ever growing pile of stuff we're going to try to squeeze in when we don't have a book to read for the podcast, you mean? Oh my God, I know it's horrible. Just think though, when we retire from podcasting, we'll have all the stuff that we can catch up on. That's true. Or when we get like Patterson famous and we just have other people do the reviews for us. Nice. Or they're co-reviewed by us. It's just like us doing <laughs> the, the welcome to booked and the keep reading at the end. Exactly. Very nice. Hey, um, so let's let's test your knowledge. What episode number was intro to hard boiled? 65. God damn it. Okay, so intro to Hard Boiled, 65. We mentioned it and talked with it, uh, talked about it with Ben a little bit. Nick Corpon came on and, uh, and helped us learn a little bit about Hard Boiled. And as you heard in the interview, um, Mr. Whitmer was named as uh, having written the quintessential um, Hard Boiled novel. Yeah, I was trying to think of the contemporary quintessential Hard Boiled novel. So um, if you want to hear more about Hard Boiled or if you want to hear uh, Nick gush a little bit about Ben Whitmer, uh, go back to episode, what episode? 65. And the other thing about that, too, is if you're already a fan of Ben Whitmer and you're just listening to hear his, uh, his beautiful voice, it, you, could, you could listen to our intro to Hard Boiled to, to find other stories that are similar or in the kind of the same realm as that that Nick's uh, recommending to kind of expand your horizons a little bit. And let's not forget that Nick writes some stuff too. Bar Scars. Bar Scars just came out on Snubnose Press. It's available. It's only $3. What can you get for $3 this day? Um, Amp Energy Drinks, two for three bucks. Ooh, yeah, you could probably get a couple double cheeseburgers somewhere too. You could, but they wouldn't be good double cheeseburgers, not for three bucks. Yeah. Where did this episode go? <laughs> It's way better when we were talking about bar scars. Check out Intro to Hard Boiled, episode number 65. And um, come on back soon for some more noir at the bar sessions. I'm Livia Snedden. And I'm Rob Olson. Keep reading. Keep reading.